0: On this episode of Nurses' Voices, we'll be talking with a Mi'kmaq Primary Care Nurse Practitioner working in Millbrook, Nova Scotia, about his experience as an Indigenous nurse and what he wants to see changed in the Canadian healthcare system. This is an amazing opportunity to learn from the wisdom of a young Indigenous nurse.
1: This is Nurses' Voices. Nurses' Voices is sponsored by Pfizer Canada. It is supported by the Canadian Nurses Foundation and the Canadian Nurses Association.
0: Welcome to Nurses Voices, I'm Mary Wheeler and I'm Gail Donner. In season one, we were introduced very briefly to the concept of Indigenous health and healing. when we spoke with Chantelle Antone, an Indigenous nurse navigator with the London, Ontario Regional Cancer Program. Diane Iago, a community health nurse working in her home community of Baker Lake, Northwest Territories. And Catherine Flynn, a non-Indigenous primary care nurse practitioner who works in Kilala-Lolum Urban Indigenous Health and Healing Cooperative in Vancouver. Gail and I learned in Season 1 that Indigenous health is a particular way of relating to patients and families. As all of us are trying to learn more about Indigenous life in the context of the Truth and Reconciliation Report and the focus across health care on equity, diversity, and inclusion, we reached out to an Indigenous nurse in a rural Mi'kmaq community to help us navigate this topic. Silly Boy of Eskasani First Nations is a Mi'kmaq primary care nurse practitioner currently working in Millbrook, Nova Scotia. His educational background includes a Bachelor of Science in Nursing from Cape Breton University and a Master's of Nursing from Dalhousie University. He also works at the Aboriginal Children Healing and Hurt Initiative, working to bridge the understanding of pain experience in Mi'kmaq children. His interests include anti-racism, pediatric pain research, and utilizing Mi'kmaq language and care. Welcome, Dinas.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: (laughs) So I was really looking forward to this evening because it's an area I think we hear a lot about but don't know a lot about or don't know uh, the what what it really means about indigenous health and healing and it was when I said earlier we heard this in season one, you know people referring to it, but I thought this would be Gail and I thought this would be a great opportunity in season two to just have an episode focused on this topic so To begin, what is Indigenous health and healing?
1: Yeah, so coming from my perspective, Mi'kmaq perspective, and looking towards a First Nation, Métis, if you can encompass like the Indigenous peoples, which are represented by those three groups. And then those are then further subdivided into many, many, many different cultures, languages and communities. In terms of like health is that definition and healing uh, varies from nation to nation, from language to language, kind of consensus that we tend to see health and healing as a holistic journey. So it has to do with the interconnectedness to yourself and the land. I know even speaking with elders and people from my communities and other communities, that we tend to frame like a a map that represents a medicine wheel, and typically are represented into four paradigms of a person. And that being emotional health, spiritual health, physical health, and mental health, it is often represented as a spider web. And if you imagine a spider web and one corner of it gets loose, it destroys the rest of the spider web, and that in turn can be an individual. If something is off in their physical aspect or their uh, mental health aspect, that it really affects the rest of that circle. And I really think going forth, like even the language portion that outside that circle, we look at the interconnectedness to land, interconnectedness to language, interconnectedness to nation and community. It's, It's kind of like this big concept of what, when you actually go down to the nitty gritty, it's just basically how that individual perceives health. And, and as we know, health and healing is not just merely the absence of disease. I, I think we as nurses do a particularly great job atoning into to certain aspects, like for physical health, we, we take all these courses like ACLS, BLS, we take critical care courses for mental health. We take courses such as mental health first aid. And then when going into emotional health, we, throughout our careers, we, we learn empathy. We, but when it comes to spiritual health, there, there's no real course to really take as nurses. For Indigenous people, where spiritual health is a huge component of who we are, especially it comes from the land, it comes from our language. This is where we fall short, and there's no just a magic course that you can take to to check this box to say yes, we are targeting virtual health, this mental health, where we can start moving towards trying to improve health outcomes in our indigenous communities is listening, listening to our communities, and I and I really feel that stakeholdership should involve indigenous patients, indigenous healthcare providers, just because like we know what what's important to us. And by working with us, like we can find solutions to better health outcomes in our communities from nation to nation. We look at healthcare as a whole, like, and unfortunately, it is inherently racist. Its foundation itself was built on oppressing people of color. And obviously, we just continue to build on top of that foundation. So, in order for us to really uh, achieve a sustainable change, we really need to get back down to that foundation and uncover the truths and histories that, that really made our, our systems the way they are. A part of redressing the, the racism that continues to live out in the system is to involve those communities, not just Indigenous, but also Black communities uh, and Asian communities and so forth, the people who are often racialized and experience discrimination and racism in our health systems. We look across the, the, the map across Canada and, and when people say, yes, racism's not that bad, you, you look at certain stories and experiences of actual Indigenous people losing their lives as a direct result of racism. You look to the Brian Sinclair case where he waited 36 hours in an emergency department waiting before succumbing to, to Eurosepsis. And ultimately he was stereotyped and ignored and directly died because of that. You look in Quebec and you see the the death of Joyce Echaquan and the experiences that she displayed to the world, um, that the very profession that's here to help and heal us, to ridicule us and deprive of us of dignity. This is why this work is important to transform the actual system itself, because It's ultimately costing us our lives and it's continuing to cause ongoing harm in our communities. You see that in the news and and you think to yourself, I don't feel safe accessing an emergency department. What if this happens to, if this happens to my sibling, what if like, and, and so forth when it comes to speaking your language, am I going to be discriminated? Am I going to be treated? for, for speaking a certain way. I really feel just being aware of our histories, being aware of our different practices and healing just really opens that conversation of How can I better care for you? We have the highest rates of anything you think of. Like you, you go to nursing school and this is the first thing you learn of that indigenous people have the highest rates of X, Y, and Z. I remember even my first year of nursing, I was like, okay, On the next slide, we're going to look at the why, and they just went on to something else. And you're like, we missed something. We're doing something about this. Right. And that's when I learned that we're not, we're just kind of standing by and hoping that someone else will do the work. And right now in the last five to seven years, we are doing a lot of work collectively, but not enough is being done. And I do feel that every institution, be in hospital systems, education systems, have a responsibility to enact change. You look across the board and the system itself and the lives it's taking, it's gone on far too long.
0: So what needs to change? Where do we begin? Where do we start to make some changes?
1: Looking at indigenous health, it's in itself. We have all these poor health outcomes and ongoing harm done to us. Like, how are we supposed to achieve what is healthy when something like racism is so pervasive that it affects all of our social determinants of health and how we access health, how we receive health and where we receive health in order for us as an Indigenous people to, to achieve what is healthy and what is health and holistically healing. We really have to tackle racism head on. And this is not just for Indigenous people, this is mm-hmm, for all mm-hmm. racialized communities mm-hmm. because it's all of us that are suffering. You just wonder what makes us any different. We, we I always say like we drive the same cars, we we're at work at the same jobs, we earn the same type of money, we, we live in all of the same houses. It's just the only difference is the language we speak and the color of our skin. What makes it right to deprive us of dignity? What makes it right to deprive us of love? We are human too. So going back to like that tackling, what is it that we need to do? Every institution and system needs to address TRC's 94 calls to action. Our governance and uh, and policies need to Uh, incorporate the United Nations Declarations of Independence of Indigenous People, the UNDRIP. We have uh, the right to self-governance. We have the right to achieve health, the the rights that constitute the minimum standards of survival, dignity and well-being of Indigenous people. This is to ensure that we receive adequate care, that we have the right to traditional medicines when we achieve care or are involved in health practices. And we have the right to access, without any discrimination, to all social and health services. That this is a, a human right. In order for us to achieve health, access has to be equitable. Access has to be accessible. You can say, yes, we're we're open 24-7, we're an emergency department, but yet we have people in my community who who exhausts all options before calling an ambulance because they are afraid or they're going to anticipate discrimination, Mm -hmm. racism. Myself and my colleagues often make difficult decisions of well, this is what we're going to do before we get to that point. Because I know like you're not going to go to the emergency department and your best interest and the care I can safely provide for you. I really do feel you need to go to the emergency department. That's not a solution for everyone. So say if you're you know for a fact your grandmother experienced this, well, I know I might experience that in that hospital too. So I'm not going to go there. I rather drive the other side of Nova Scotia, 6-hour drive to go to this ER because I know that they'll hear me. That that's that shouldn't be a reality for anyone. Like you should be able to go to your nearest emergency department and receive care and not be uh, afraid of being discriminated or racialized. There's obviously a lot of work to be done. And even the question you said, Mary, like, what do we do? I, I think it's to bring us to the table, to listen to us when it comes to making decisions, involve us in in terms of how is it going to impact the community? How is it going to benefit the community? Well, let's involve the community so we know what needs are going to be met.
2: It seems to me all the things you saying are things, I've been a nurse for a very long time, are, are things that we have given lip service to for a long time. I've taught for years, Mary has taught, we've done all kinds of work with nurses and their careers, etc. And I think what you're doing is saying you have to see beneath what you think you're doing to what this looks like. When someone comes with a different life experience, a different color, a different language, different whatever. I went and listened to the anti-racism summit that Canadian Nurses Association had. The Honorable Murray Sinclair gave this most amazing talk. And I spent the whole time thinking, where have I been? all this time. And I grew up and did my nursing in Winnipeg, and you will be aware more than even I am, that Winnipeg has a very large First Nations community in the city and in the surrounding parts of Manitoba, northern Manitoba, et cetera. And we, quote, cared for or thought we did Indigenous people all the time at the major teaching hospital in the downtown. But then I listen to what you're saying, and I have to say, mm. we were all taught, I for you it's probably since Florence, to be empathetic. But I guess we also had some, I will say blinders, or whatever you want to say, some really couldn't get past that. So I listened to somebody like you, a young man with such passion. How have you come to this? What what has given you the 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 determination um and the you know the will to help to make it different and better?
1: going back into like, when I first entered nursing, I didn't really like, I I would say like, I would had those blinders on too, because I, for the most part lived in a bubble, like I lived in my community, went to university. And then like, I went into hospital, like the hospital for the very first time and just seeing like, not, not the direct care, but just the attitudes that exist towards um, like not my particular community, but in, in general, just the unknowing and the, the, the fear of asking uh, an example that really pushed me to try and educate or push and advocate for change was I remember I was probably nine months into my career as a nurse and. I remember I encountered a Mi'kmaq person from one of my communities and I remember them sh- being upset and, and being in pain. And uh, as nurses, like we, we are able to provide pain medication, but I remember that she was also experiencing a hurt that I, I can't just give a mid and heal that hurt. So I, I sat down and listened and I asked, like, is there anything that you wanted to talk about? And I remember them just sharing their, their experiences in residential school, uh, which I won't share the, the stories said, but I remember going back into the, the lobby and and I just remember my eyes were like, well, tears that, that individual share just really spoke to my heart and really hurt me that, that, that this is what they experienced. And I remember one of my coworkers look at me and like, like, looks like you saw a ghosts like what's wrong what's wrong and i'm like well this is what so and so shared and they started laughing and and i thought i i don't think i said anything funny and 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 they just like you honestly believe a story like that do you honestly think that a priest would do that or or do you really think a school like that yeah, that would exist and i'm like residential school like do, like and they are like I don't know what that is. And I just remember thinking like, this individual has been a nurse for 20 plus years, for many, many thousands of people from my communities, not knowing the, the trauma that we have experienced, the, the history of hurt that we experienced. And, and it just spoke to me that, you know what, like that's embarrassing, not for that individual, I'm embarrassed for this hospital. I'm embarrassed that I never provided the opportunities for the last twenty years to to provide that education about my communities. I I went to a four-year baccalaureate program, and I've learned about different cultures. I've mind you, they didn't really talk about Mi'kmaq people, and but I took that opportunity to to teach that, and I'm like any presentation that I had, I I took that opportunity. But going back, I remember thinking like, wow, we're really not doing anything for my community. And it just saddened me. And I remember like looking up a, a policy on cultural competency and it was like, we will offer opportunities annually to to educate our staff. And I'm like, I'm asking around, have you guys ever seen anything like this? And they're like, no, for the last like 10 years I've been here, I've not seen anything like that so i remember really like or organizing just small little sessions out of like my own time on my days off just to have these conversations hear these stories just because this is how people are going to have their eyes opened this is where they know this this is how you're going to engage in anti racism work because this is you're you're seeing it happen this is you're seeing it um occur in what communities and the change that you're going to make, you're going to make because it comes from your heart, not because it, it's to check a box. So seeing it and hearing it, and, and not saying that you need to go out and ask every racialized person to tell their story. It's not like that. It's you take that time, you, you do your learning, like the internet's available, books are available, resources are available, podcasts are available. And know who, what key stakeholder you need to talk to, to, to try and make a learning. I always say like, it's impossible to know everything indigenous and to say that you have this pan indigenous understanding. I I often tell people, know the location you're at. So if I live in Nova Scotia, I am in the land of the Mi'kmaq. So I should be knowledgeable about how to care for Mi'kmaq patients. I should be knowledgeable about the language, I should like, not, not to say to be fluent, but like, how nice is it to walk into an emergency department and tell someone telling you Guay. I remember an ER physician actually used to do that in Cape Breton. And I thought, wow, that just eliminates such a power imbalance between the, the physician and one of my community members just by saying hello in in our language. And I often tell people, you go online and and just see what land you're residing on and what language is spoken there. Pick up a word or two, because you you don't know what profound impact you're going to make on an individual just by saying hello. How safe that they'll feel knowing that you're acknowledging them, you are seeing them. So, like, I I guess all all in all, that's kind of like what pushes me to, to be very vocal on change, and I, and I really feel that meaningful change comes from the heart. And I know a, a lot of people, that's where it's comes from, too. So I'm very hopeful that, that change is coming.
0: <laughs> what well, change will be coming with people like you in the leadership role?
1: Even in our programs here in Nova Scotia, a lot of our, our um, initiatives are starting to be Indigenous-led and, and Indigenous-collaborated. Okay. Um, so one of the principles of our ways of knowing and our ways of being, uh, uh, I guess, a pedagogy known as two-eyed seeing. And I know I, I don't mm. know if you ever had the opportunity to hear, but it's it's basically utilizing indigenous ways of knowing and Western ways of knowing, seen through each of those lenses, to benefit all. And it's not to, to merge them together. It's, it's utilizing the strengths of each and just to benefit everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and we always say, this is not just to benefit indigenous people. It, it, it benefits everyone because in my perspective, when I kind of try to explain to white seeing, I often use this, like this metaphor that if you were in a, a dark room and everyone was uh, situated in a circle seated and in the middle of the room, was an object. And obviously, no one can see anything, but you hand one individual a flashlight, and they turn Mm -hmm. it on, and they can kind of make out what's in front of them, but really can't get the full breadth of what's there. The more people's perspectives that you turn on, so those flashlights in that round circle, eventually you're going to see what's in front of you, you're going to be able to dissect it, you're going to be able to see where it comes from. And I always say like the thing in the middle is either an issue or a strength that we're trying to better understand. And in order for us to better understand it, it's using multiple perspectives. And I really feel that that's something that can speak to everything. Like like having more people at the, at the table is going to bring so much breadth into understanding the issues that continue to live on.
2: I mean, you must be a treasure in your own community. That's all I can say. But I would love to know what actually do you do in your own community? Because you must be a terrific help to those who need to access the mainstream system and are anxious and for good reason. So can you tell us a little bit about what what your work is?
1: I always introduce myself as a Mi'kmaq nurse practitioner, or Onu nurse practitioner, Onu meaning the people, just because I, I feel it's a, a very merged role, not only as a to bring to the table, my role, my expertise as a nurse and my education. But I also bring my life experiences, my language and my culture as a Mi'kmaq person to the table. And I marry those two in in my role, like whether or not is my awareness of the values in my community, the awareness of the language we speak in our communities. And, And I really do feel that this role, like it is a leadership role that we're constantly trying to advocate for change that realize that. That as a provider in a Mi'kmaq community or an indigenous community or a racialized community, whether or not you're indigenous white, you're, you're going to navigate through a racist system for your patient. Like you're constantly uh, battling like insurance plans or non-insured benefits, or explaining to pharmacies that things are covered or not covered for indigenous patients, you're, you're constantly. Uh, advocating for patients to be seen in a certain area for X, Y, and Z, whether or not what barriers exist, and that lens of you knowing what barriers actually exist, and that you're really thinking ahead that, you know what, I'm going to arrange for transportation, I'm going to ar- help arrange for childcare, so I can know, I know for a fact that patient's going to make it to that appointment. Often, we're trying to advocate for meaningful change in our communities, and whether or not it's sitting down and taking the time and explaining it in Mi'kmaq smokeless cessation, or this is how you take your puffer. Knowing histories, knowing how we live and be, I think is going to really transform how we deliver care for Indigenous patients.
2: But for all patients, what you're describing, one doesn't have to be Indigenous to be deserving of a Response that takes who you are as a person into consideration and respect,
1: I think my hopes for nursing, regardless of who you are or where you come from or the language you speak, we are all worthy of care, and we should all feel that we should all feel love like love is the the core of nursing, and it should really apply to every individual and I often tell people, if you want to make change, listen. If you want to make change, speak. So whatever platform that you have and and you're aware of that platform, look around and see in the room whose voice you can help amplify. You don't need to, you don't have to speak for that individual. That individual can speak for themselves and that's where Governments and health systems have done wrongs is thinking that they can speak for our communities. So look around and see who you can uplift. And I think nursing in itself, we are advocates. We should be looking to uplift, not speak for.
0: What a wonderful way to end this conversation. And I'm feeling, dinas Gail and I are at the other end of our career. You're at the very beginning of your career. I mean, you've been in it for a while, but my hope for nursing is that individuals like yourselves are able to realize just exactly what you have articulated. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of season two of Nurses Voices, and we look forward to seeing you in future episodes. You can view and listen to Nurses Voices on a variety of platforms, including YouTube and Apple Podcasts. And remember, if you want to give us any feedback, please connect with us through NursesVoices.ca. And remember to sign up for our e-newsletter.
1: Nurses Voices is sponsored by Pfizer Canada. It is created by Donna Mueller. It is produced by Sector Limited. It is supported by the Canadian Nurses Foundation and the Canadian Nurses Association.